0: Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 53, it says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The chapter began with Jesus relating a series of parables, and we've talked for many weeks about the reason for those parables. Remember, Jesus spoke in parables to reveal the truth to those who love the truth, to conceal the truth from those who aren't interested in the truth. And now we see in part a reaction to those parables, a reaction to his teachings, a reaction to him. Jesus will return to Nazareth for the last time. And the people are at first amazed in verses 53 through 56. And then they're angered in verses 57 through 58. Jesus does few miracles there because of their unbelief. Someone once said, unbelief is not the cause of sin. Sin is the cause of unbelief. And that's exactly right. And throughout this message, you should be asking yourself this very simple and fundamental question. What is it that I believe? And you might think it's too big of a question or too large of a question. You might think, well, what do you mean? What do I believe about God? What do I believe about Jesus? What do I believe about life and death, heaven and hell? The answer is yes. What do you believe about that and all of that? What is it that you believe about your life and about this world and about its future? We know that belief is a powerful motivator, but unbelief is also a powerful thing. Adam and Eve failed to believe God, and the whole world fell into ruin. Noah warned a wicked world for some 120 years that God's judgment was about to come on an earth that defied God and and disobeyed God and only his wife and three of his children and their wives followed him into the ark of safety. Israel refused to believe God and wandered in the desert for 40 years. Aaron refused to believe God's word about worship and fabricated a golden calf which resulted initially in the loss of some 3,000 lives. Moses neglected and then refused God's command, and it cost him entrance into the promised land. King Nebuchadnezzar, in pride, refused to believe God and was cursed with a delusion that caused him to act for like an animal for, for a long time. In the course of Jesus' ministry, some disciples refused to believe him. They refused to believe that he was the bread that Jonathan talked about last week that came down from heaven and how we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And they were offended at this. And they ceased to follow him in John 6, 6, 6. I don't think it's a coincidence. Simon lost his voice when an angel told him that his aged wife, Elizabeth, would be pregnant with a child. In Luke 1.20 it says, And now you will be silent, and you won't be able to speak until... This happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Unquote. Belief in Jesus, faith in Jesus, trust in Jesus has the power to bring pardon. And forgiveness of sin and eternal life, unbelief has the power to hold a person in their sin and condemn them to hell. Just as belief can bring confidence in Christ, happiness, joy, peace, liberation, the experience of God's presence and favor, unbelief, quote, has the power to bring eternal sorrow, pain, anguish in God's absence, one Bible writer has written. There was an Eastern bishop of the United Brethren in Christ who was accustomed to paying an annual visit to a small religious college, and on one such visit, the bishop engaged in an after-dinner conversation with the president of the college The religious leader offered the opinion that the millennium could not be long in coming since everything about nature had been discovered, all the possibilities, all the inventions that ever could be made had been made, and the college president disagreed, stating that he believed that in the next 50 years, human beings would create unbelievable and incredible inventions, so much so that within 50 years, human beings would be able to fly like birds. And the bishop shouted, Nonsense! Flight is for angels, he said. The bishop's name was Milton. Right. He had two sons, Orville and Wilbur. Who didn't believe their father. But believed in the possibility. That maybe everything. That could be done had not yet been done. They believed. That perhaps flight might be possible. Isn't that interesting? Because there are people who believe that their mother, their father, their brother, their sister is beyond hope. Their child, their grandchild, they believe that their marriage is beyond hope, they believe that this world is beyond hope, they believe that the circumstances that they find themselves are beyond hope. But once again Jesus is going to bring an opportunity And in Matthew chapter 13, verse 53, look what it says. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. He left Capernaum. Capernaum had been his ministry headquarters. It was the place where Jesus called and trained the disciples. It was the place where he preached the Sermon on the Mount. It was the place where he preached in the synagogue and healed the sick and raised the dead and taught the parables. And now he was going to leave Capernaum, never to return unless briefly, as he was going to pass on his way. Back to Jerusalem, even at his ministry headquarters, even under those circumstances, many had fallen away. Many who heard his sermon and saw his miracles refused to follow him. And they probably had all kinds of reasons that they could have appealed to ignorance. They could have appealed to indifference. They could have appealed to outright rejection Earlier, Jesus had delivered a stinging rebuke against Capernaum. In chapter 11, verse 23, where he called on Korazim and Bethsaida and Capernaum and called them out and said, how could you not believe? How could you not embrace what you have seen? As a matter of fact, some of you might find yourself in a place where an old chapter is closing and a new chapter is beginning. It might be because your children are grown and gone or you might have a brand new baby. It could be that you ended one job and you're starting another. All of us find ourselves in lots of circumstances in our life, a season in our life. And Jesus is going to leave one place and he's going to go to the other. And by the way, if you ever have a chance to visit Capernaum right at this very moment, you'll see that for the most part, it's a ghost town with ruins of a partially excavated village. Whenever you go to the place on the gate, there's a sign. And I have seen this sign several times, Capernaum, the town of Jesus. People go there. And they remember. It's interesting to me. In verse 54, look what it says. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? He left Capernaum. He goes to Nazareth, which is a reference to where he spent his childhood. We don't know a whole lot about the early life of Jesus except that as a child his mother Mary and Joseph at some point after Jesus was born in Bethlehem was forced to flee to Egypt for a season. But they returned to the Galilee region They settled in Nazareth. We know that from Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. It was in Nazareth where Jesus was brought up in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, and Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. It was there that he spent much of his life, about 30 years, it says in Luke chapter 3, verse 23. For Jesus, Nazareth was home. Some scholars estimate that the population in that period To be about 1,600 to 2,000 people in the whole region. Or at least in the region of of Nazareth. Jesus was going home. He was going home to where his mom lived. He was going home to where his brothers and sisters lived. He had preached there once before. And it did not go well. In Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, we read, quote, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. In 417, it says, And he was handed the scroll, or the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me or anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And when Jesus announced that he rolled up the scroll, he handed it back to the elder, he sat in his seat, and he said, This day, this passage is fulfilled in me. That he was anointed by God's Holy Spirit to minister to the pressing needs of hurting people, he was called by God to bring salvation he was called to announce the year of jubilee and by the way that's the acceptable year of the lord the acceptable year of the lord is the year of jubilee it's a re- reference to leviticus chapter 25 verse 8 where in everything israel was re- being restored to its proper place it was he also announced that he was by god's grace going to make that provision and he proceeded to give two examples from jewish history to prove that God's grace and God's mercy extended to the Gentiles and the people there were very, very happy about bringing help and hope to hurting people and they were very angry that that help and hope and grace and mercy extended to people who were outside of their purview. Their response was to try and kill Jesus when Jesus exposed their hypocrisy and their unbelief, he tried to, they tried to throw him off of a cliff. And clearly Jesus had gained some measure of fame and recognition. Warren Wiersbe writes, two things amazed the people of Nazareth, the Lord's words and the Lord's works. However, they did not trust him. And this limited his ministry, unquote. Where did this man get this wisdom and mighty works? On the surface, it's a great question. It's probably one of the most important questions you could ever ask yourself. It isn't just simply where did Jesus get the wisdom and where did Jesus get the power? It goes to that very fundamental issue of what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about him? How do you explain him? How is it that you can explain who he is and what he has done? It's a, if it's a sincere question to get at the true identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus, that's great. But is it a question to get at the identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus or is it a question to reinforce skepticism and unbelief? Clearly they're astonished at his wisdom and they're astonished at his supernatural power. What or who is the source of this wisdom where did it come from? Where did the power come from? And it seems odd to me, of course, to ask the source of wisdom and power, where do you get your, your wisdom and power? The only reason there is such a thing as wisdom is because God gives it. The only, thing that there, the only reason why there is such a thing as power is because all power truly comes from the self-existent god Jesus had demonstrated his wisdom and power and authority over every single area of life Jesus had taught on so many subjects He taught about eternal life. He taught about the nature of God. He taught about life. He taught about death. He taught about time. He taught about eternity. He taught about regeneration. He taught about worship and regeneration and sin. He taught about salvation and morality and divorce and family relationships and community relationships. He had taught about murder and he taught about hatred and he taught about lying. He taught about servanthood. He taught about self and dying to self. He taught about countless other subjects. But Jesus wasn't educated in the traditional sense of the world. Jesus did not write a single book He didn't attend rabbinic schools and the largest city he ever visited was Jerusalem if you allow for perhaps the possibility that when his mother and stepfather fled into Egypt at the mouth of the the Nile River, there was one of the four largest cities in the Mediterranean, Alexandria. There is that possibility. But he was only a small child How could he have known so much, having never been taught? Despite the usual traditional credentials, he taught as one having authority. His spiritual and moral teachings were so true and so profound that they have failed to be refuted then as well as now. Even his enemies and critics are hard-pressed to deny what he said. Think about his wisdom. Think about his authority. Think about what he said. And no wonder they wondered. But I'm going to suggest to you that they wondered the wrong thing. These people in his hometown couldn't make the obvious connection that his wisdom was from the Lord, his teaching was from the Lord, his authority was from the Lord, his power was from the Lord, and it was all linked to his identity and his divinity, his heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit and his mission because of the fact that he was in fact God in the flesh. The Bible says that God was in Jesus reconciling the world to himself. And this is the power of unbelief. That in spite of the evidence, in light of the overwhelming truth, unbelief insists on not believing. Unbelief isn't swayed by logic or evidence or reason or the presence of truth. The people didn't reject Jesus for a lack of evidence, but in spite of the evidence. What causes a person to remain unconvinced in the presence of overwhelming evidence? People will go to absurd and self-destructive extremes to deny the Bible's testimony, and to deny history, and to deny the reality of Jesus. Deepak Chopra has no problem believing in the divinity of all people, but he becomes unglued. The moment a Christian says, you know, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. He believes in divinity for all except for the one person who is truly divine. Isn't that interesting? I remember watching a TV program where Deepak Chopra said that he was deeply concerned that faith becomes fanaticism when you believe your way is the only way. The statement proves that Deepak Chopra believed that Jesus was a fanatic. And do you know what is one of the most tragic and horrific outcomes which you'll begin to hear in the news the moment that you walk out of these doors and you go onto your radio and you begin to watch the popular news cycle. The pundits will forget that almost certainly it was a radical Muslim Islamist who killed those people in Orlando. But then the conversation is going to drift to you. To you as a Christian. Because you believe stuff. Because you believe that some things are true and some things are false and some things are right and some things are wrong. And they're going to suggest, they're going to suggest that maybe there's something wrong with you as well. I'm not for a moment suggesting that we do anything other than remind everyone that our goal has always been and will forever be to point broken people to Jesus, hurt people to Jesus. We do not expose people's sin for the purpose of launching a crusade of superiority In moments of complete honesty and transparency. We should be the ones who first admit that we are the sinners. And like Paul the Apostle, they That we are the chief of, of sinners... Some of the so-called intellectuals proudly will pat themselves on the back, delighted to think that they can explain the scripture's testimony concerning Jesus as a philosophical and a spiritual principle, disconnected from the Old Testament prophecies, disconnected from the New Testament testimonies, disconnected from his teachings, disconnected from his life, disconnected from his death on the cross if you ever, ever wonder how you can have a right view of your own sinful circumstances, all you have to do is just meditate and dwell and think about the cross of Calvary just for a moment and ask yourself, what do I believe about that cross? Why in the world did God send his son to die on a cross? And if you believe the testimony of the Bible, you'll begin to understand that the answer to that question was for your sin, for your rebellion and your disobedience. Those false disciples who believe in everything, but Jesus' divine power and Jesus' deity are going to be shocked when Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And so look at the personal offense in verse 55. Look what it says. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. The locals are familiar with Mary and her husband, the carpenter. They mention brothers by name. James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. The Jewish historian Josephus will later mention James, the brother of Jesus, and speak of his death in Jerusalem. The little epistle of Jude is said to have been written by Judas, the brother of Jesus. These questions that they're asking indicate doubt, maybe even Hostility. How could someone so ordinary to them have such extraordinary powers? And that becomes the point of the question. Well, wait a minute. Jesus is an ordinary person, not an extraordinary person. There's his mother. There's his brothers. There's his sisters. They've been with us. By the way, if you could go back in time and space and see Mary, she wouldn't be glowing. That, you, you see, you laugh, but you think, well, wait a minute. She's the perpetual virgin who was born without sin. And clearly, if she's some like un, un, otherworldly human, you would think that, uh, that the idea that, oh, yeah, you, why couldn't you tell that Jesus was different? He's glowing in the dark. That's got to give you a sign that there's something extraordinary happening. But the whole point of this passage is the ordinariness of it. On a recent trip to visit my wife's sister in the hospital, we visited my old high school, Apple Valley High School. In 1973 and 74, I was the student body president of that school. And we, I took my wife to see my picture hanging in the, in the office. There's like four pictures before me, and then there's me, and there's about 44 after me. So the principal of the school comes out. And he looks at the picture and then he looks at me and then he looks at the picture and he looks at me and I go, yeah, that's me. And he laughs and he goes, that's the year I was born. (laughs) Just like you laughed. The ordinary course and consequence of living in verse 56, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Where indeed? Where did they come from? Did they come from God? Did they come from somewhere other than God? Is this God's Messiah? And the people of Nazareth can't accept the fact that Jesus is God's Messiah. So they focus on less relevant things. The fact that Jesus grew up there, that he had brothers there, sisters who lived there, and was possibly... Even in that synagogue at that very moment, it could have been that as Jesus is there with his disciples and the normal people that he had grown up with, his mother is there, his brothers are there, his sisters are there. The Jewish people certainly had a number of false views about their Messiah, but all of them accepted that he would be a man, that he would be a Jew, that he would be a descendant of David, that he would be born under supernatural circumstances, that he would deliver the nation, that he would have a kingdom that would never end. To, to, To think of the idea that they didn't have any belief whatsoever Can't possibly be true. They believed something about the Messiah, and what they believed about the Messiah in their mind didn't connect to Jesus. The people of Nazareth thought that they knew Jesus, they knew his family. If you could go back there and speak and say, hey, do you know Jesus? They would No, Jesus, no, Jesus. The carpenter Joseph repaired my roof. He fixed my door. He built my yoke. Jesus played with my children growing up. If he were the Messiah, don't you think I would know it? If there was something extraordinary and remarkable about him, don't you think I would know it? Don't you think that if he did anything messianic while he was here, I would know it? Mockers, scoffers, focus on the irrelevant and then they demand the unnecessary. And the passage comes as a surprise to our Roman Catholic friends. It did to me. What? You mean Mary had... Normal relations with her husband? Well, see, we laugh again. But what's more weird? That you're called by God to marry a woman who says, Oh, by the way, God's called me to be a perpetual virgin. See, you laugh again because, again, this is not abnormal. This is normal. You mean Mary wasn't a perpetual virgin? yeah. Well, couldn't these be cousins or siblings from a previous union? In order for that to be true, you have to take dangerous departures from the text because when it says is not this the carpenter's son is not his mother called Mary and his brothers the normal word here for brother is in fact brother if they were cousins or family members there's a perfectly good Greek word that they could have used to describe that but this is the word that you would use to describe siblings There's nothing in the text that would lead us to believe that Mary remained a virgin or that these are close relatives. These are actual siblings. Jesus had an ordinary Jewish family, Mary's husband had an ordinary occupation, he had ordinary brothers and sisters. And the family had apparently spent most of their time right there in the Galilee. They never went to Babylon. They never went to India. They didn't have an ashram and a New Age mystical resort center in Nazareth because of all of these weird places where they went. It never happened. Jesus had a common, ordinary upbringing in the Galilee that was occupied by the Romans There were cultural influences by the Greeks and those from Persia. There were Roman influences and Greek influences and all of the kinds of cultural influences that take place in any kind of cultural setting. But his ordinary upbringing and his ordinary family served as a smokescreen for the people to make a wrong assessment and a wrong decision about his identity and about his mission and about his destiny because they came to the conclusion there's nothing special about him. Just like some of your family members and friends. Ask them, tell me what you believe about Jesus. He was a great man, possibly the greatest man who ever lived. Do you think that he was the second person of the Trinity who acquired a second nature, a human nature? Do you believe that he's God in the flesh? Do you believe that he came from heaven to rescue you from your sin? Do you believe that there's a reason why God started all of this? There's a reason why the gospel is true? People will throw up smoke screens and rationalizations to dismiss Jesus and his message, and you know what a rationalization is a plausible but untrue excuse why you can continue in your sin and continue in your unbelief. I could recite a thousand objections and 10,000 questions. And I'm not afraid of questions. I've devoted most of my life answering people's questions How do you know Jesus is really who he says he is? How do you know that he really died on the cross? How do you know that he really loves me? How do you know that salvation is real? Do honest people have honest questions that require careful and compassionate biblical answers? The answer is is of course. But how many of our questions are an excuse to kick The can of confrontation down the road a little bit further. At what point will you honestly explain the question Who is Jesus? The resurrection of Jesus, the death, the life of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus. How do I reconcile the claims of Christ with my own sinful life? How long will I remain in rebellion against God? Unbelief will go to extraordinary lengths to run from the truth and hide from the truth and deny the truth and rationalize the truth and fail to face the truth. The people of Nazareth denied the evidence. They allowed the fact that they grew up with him and his family and they allowed their jealousy or resentment or embarrassment or, as John MacArthur says, quote, a host of other wicked and petty feelings to fill their hearts and become barriers to their salvation, unquote. The people of Nazareth found it easier to cling to their ignorance and unbelief than to acknowledge the truth about Jesus. And so it is with so many people that you know. Perhaps it's even you. It's so much easier just to not believe the Bible and not believe the gospel And to go on with your life as if it's not true. And so look what it says in verse 57. So they were offended at him. Unbelief has to disguise itself. Unbelief runs from the truth. Unbelief can't tolerate the truth. It has to embrace lies in order to survive. And so unbelief welcomes lies. The word offended, by the way, translates a Greek word. You're going to know it as soon as I say it. Scandalizo. You laugh because you go, oh, I know that word. Scandalize. Scandalize the word means to trip to stumble to offend the friends and neighbors and perhaps his own family were offended but i i want you to come to grips with something what are they offended by exactly I'm offended that Jesus opened blind eyes. I'm I'm offended that blind people can now see. I'm offended that dead people came back to life. I'm offended that hurt people have been made well. I'm offended that people who've been drawn out the circle have now been able to come into the circle. Are they offended? Are they offended that he feeds the multitudes? Are they offended because he is the bread that came down from heaven? Are they offended that he confronts Satan? Are they offended because he walks on water? They're not offended. By any of those things. They're offended because he, being an ordinary man, claims to be something extraordinary. Because Jesus believed himself to be God's Messiah, Jesus talked and acted. As if God were his very own father. They were offended by his speech. They were offended by his claims. They're offended by his message. They're offended by his ordinary family. They're offended by his lack of formal training. They're offended that he has no acceptable religious credentials. And we may not have a complete picture of what Jesus taught at that moment. But whatever it is that he was teaching in the synagogue that day, whatever it was, it unmasked their hypocrisy. It exposed their sin. It demonstrated the truthfulness of his statements. And I have every reason to believe that Jesus exposed their sin and asked them to repent. The same thing that the Bible does every time you open it every time you ask what is this message what is what is the message that i'm reading in this book there's something wrong there's something terribly wrong with the human heart but there's a solution to that god loves you he's looking for a a way to save you not to hurt you but if you've ever been caught red-handed in a lie, if you've ever been exposed for stealing or lying or cheating or manipulating, if you've ever been called out for selfishness or being a self serving person, if you've ever trusted someone with a secret that was sacred only to be hurt and betrayed, if you've ever been involved with lies and cover ups and crimes. If you've ever been in a situation where whatever it was that happened, you tried to make yourself look a little less evil. Or you paint yourself in the best possible light so that you can quickly retreat back into the darkness. Then you understand what it means to need a savior. And so look at the tragic outcome. It says, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Jeremiah knew this to be true in Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 21 through 23. God had called him to be a prophet. God called him to speak to the people. God called Jeremiah to give a specific Message. That if believed and embraced would mean help, but disbelieved and rejected would mean judgment. Jesus claimed to be a prophet, but he wasn't simply a prophet. He was that and more. A Muslim in good faith and in good conscience can read this verse, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and to his own house and say, I have no problem with that. I have no problem believing that Jesus was a prophet. I have no problem believing that he was without honor in his own country. But it's the moment that you suggest that there's more than just this simple statement in the new testament to describe his identity and to describe his mission and to describe why he came wh griffith thomas says quote it was their refusal to honor him that turned aside the stream of blessing for we read that quote he did not many mighty works because of their unbelief unquote in verse 58 that's exactly what it says now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I want to just quickly remind you of some things that we've already learned. Unbelief demands the unnecessary. Unbelief depends on lies. Unbelief destroys the, the miraculous. Here's the incredible irony. The people of Nazareth want a miracle. They want Jesus to do miracles. Did you know that? They want Jesus to do miracles just like he did in Capernaum. In John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 46, it says... For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me in verse 47. But if you do not believe his writings, you won't believe my works, John 7, 5. For even his own brothers didn't believe him. Therefore, Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come, for you any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. Jesus is rebuking their faith. He's rebuking their hypocrisy. He's rebuking their unbelief. In Psalm 78, 41, it says, Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel, unquote. Is God limited by unbelief? My answer is going to surprise you. God is God. God isn't limited by anyone. God isn't limited by anything. God can do anything that he wants, independent from the belief or the unbelief of human beings. God isn't limited by your wickedness and your unbelief. Sorry. God simply acts according to his nature and his character. The Bible says that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The Bible says you must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. God simply refuses to reward unbelief and faithlessness. The Lord Jesus would have healed them. The Lord Jesus would have worked among them. But their unbelief was the same as saying, No, no. No, thank you. No, thank you. No thanks. Maybe some other time. No, no, and no. Unbelief hardens the heart. Acts nineteen nine ignores God's pleadings. Romans ten twenty one stumbles at His word. 1 Peter two eight severs us from the Lord. Romans eleven twenty unbelief incentivizes. Envy and persecution, Acts 14:2 and Acts 17:5, and is synonymous with disobedience in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Unbelief is what happens right before destruction. I don't believe you. I know. Most of us are familiar with the story of the sinking of the Titanic. The British luxury liner was 45,000 gross tons and on its maiden voyage from Liverpool to New York, struck an iceberg about 95 miles south of the Grand Banks of Newfoundland. The time was just before midnight on April 14, 1912. Of the more than 2,220 people on board, 1,513 died. Including the millionaire John Jacob Astor and Benjamin Guggenheim and Isidore Strauss, the ship was thought to be unsinkable. One person in Liverpool said, quote, not even God can sink this ship, unquote. <laughs> Belief. An unbelief. Investigations discovered that lifeboat space had only been provided for three-fourths of the passengers and crew. By the way, there was room on the lifeboats for 700 more passengers. But why do you suppose they didn't get into the lifeboat? Because they simply didn't believe that the ship would sink. And so they stayed on board. what do you really believe? What do you really believe? Because the moment you tell me what you really believe, I can tell you what you really don't believe. And the moment that you tell me what you don't believe... I can tell you what you really believe. Do you believe that there's something wrong inside of your heart that requires a solution that only God can provide in Christ? Or not? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for that person who in their heart of hearts and their soul of souls, they know that there's something horrible and terribly wrong, that they're a sinner and that they need a Savior and that Jesus is the Savior. And that perhaps they have come to a place in their life where they're willing to perhaps believe, perhaps for the first time, That Jesus not only died to save them from their sins. But that he's willing and able and desirous to do exactly that. And so there's really only a couple of important questions you need to ask. Can you answer the question? Are you a sinner? If the answer is yes... There's one other important question. Do you want forgiveness? The either is either yes or no. And if the answer is yes, if you know and understand that Jesus loves you, that you can turn from your sin and turn to the Savior and accept him as your Lord, then perhaps you might want to pray this simple prayer with me. Heavenly Father, you have the ability to look into my heart and see the circumstances of my life and the condition of my soul. Lord, I need a Savior. I want to experience forgiveness. I want to accept Christ as my Savior. And Lord, I also pray for the Christian who's come to the end of their rope When it comes to their family, when it comes to their job, when it comes to their marriage, and they wonder if there's a miracle that's available for them. Is there some mighty work that Jesus can do? Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would cause them (laughs) to believe, to believe the truth that God loves them and cares about their family and cares about their life and cares about their marriage and cares about their future and that you're willing to intervene. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will speak to people's hearts and remind them of your love and comfort them with your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there will be people in the front of the church here to talk with you and pray with you. If you need prayer, if, you, if that was part of your prayer, then come on up. There are people who would love to talk with you and pray with you about these things. Let's stand. All these pieces broken and scattered